Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. We continue our classic text series today with a bracing word of consolation. And maybe that sounds like a paradox to you, but you'll see what I mean. We'll hear from a Catholic brother and father in the faith, Father Vincent McNabb. Father McNabb was a man of brilliant mind, great wisdom, and a deep love for our Lord and for the poor. Our editor, Father Mark Michael, will introduce Father McNabb further and read two excerpts from his work on the spiritual craft of suffering. Whatever your current circumstances, this is undoubtedly a time inviting us to greater courage, patience, love, and a deeper sanctity of life. How do we learn to suffer? How is God with a world that suffers? How do the sufferings of Jesus redeem that world? How do they redeem me? These are two retreat talks that Father McNabb gave to the Sisters of the Senecal in their convent at Grayshot in the early 1930s. McNabb was a noted philosopher and theologian, the author of over 20 books, the friend of G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. He was a man noted in his time for his interest in ecumenical work with Anglicans, uh, something dear to our own heart and mission. Also, uh, a man who himself lived a life of great ascetical intensity. He slept only on the floor of his of his cell and 
had only a single set of clothing and five books to his name. And much of his ministry was seeking out the poor and suffering in the community where his order was based in London and visiting the poor in their houses, uh, sometimes uh, scrubbing their floors with his down on his own hands and knees. They called him the Mahatma Gandhi of Kentish town. And so when he spoke of suffering, as he does so powerfully in these meditations, he does so as a man who knows intimately the suffering of which he speaks. These meditations were written against the backdrop of the Great Depression, which was reshaping life profoundly across Britain in this time. And McNabb offers a, a, an engaging approach to the ways in which suffering can be fruitful in the life of a Christian, that suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment of us, but an invitation to grow in holiness and in conformity to Christ who gave himself for us. This is also a time of suffering of many kinds for people in many situations. And I think that McNabb's counsel, these are words that we all need to hear and are perhaps better prepared to hear now than at times in the past. I hope that they will be a blessing to you as they have been to me. I read first a retreat talk called The Problem of Suffering, given at Grayshot Convent, August 1931. What man is there among you of whom, if his son shall ask bread, will he reach him a stone? Or if he shall ask him a fish, will he reach him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. One of the problems which seems to give the lie to this truth is the great problem of human suffering. It seems to give the lie to the goodness of God. Much sympathy must always be felt for those who, under the pressure of bodily or mental suffering, find that a cloud has come between them and God's goodness. Now God is good, and sometimes best, when the soul that loves him is asked to go into the shadows, even of death. Well, of course, we never go alone, but always in his company. Poor human nature, which has almost lost the art of reasoning, thinks that we within the mercies of the church are morbid about suffering. Of course, the contrary is the case. They see we do face it. In a sense, to quote the Greeks at their best, all philosophy is the philosophy of death. There is no chance of right thinking unless we begin to face the facts. Whether there is a God or is not, there is suffering. To deny the good God is to quench the only light of consolation in the Egyptian night of suffering. The bewilderment of mind nowadays is so great, people think the person who will deal with the difficulty is creating it. I like the great wisdom of the man who came into the fold within the last few years, Mr. G.K. Chesterton, who said, Some men have their hands clean because they're making the world unclean. 
Others have their hands unclean because they are making the world clean. The paradox is not the writer's or the artist's, but of fact, expressing it in exact mode. Of course, the writer uttered the paradox, but it is the world's paradox. The poor, suffering, bewildered world thinks somehow that the Catholic Church is causing suffering because it accepts it as a fact to be accounted for and counteracted. The Church is never allowing suffering merely to reign, but it tries to counteract it. It has not such a Manichaean view of suffering as to say it is an evil so great that no good could be made of it, but it faces the fact as it is. It is not the final fact, for God is good. Now let us just examine it quietly and see the Church's attitude toward it. The Church does not look at suffering as a final thing, nor any kind of evil or defect as a final thing. It would not allow that. God, in his very essence, is good, and some evil things he can do nothing but permit, like moral evil. But all other evils, even pain of body, can never be directly willed by God. God can only permit moral evil to save human free will. Other evils he allows, never for their own sake, but always for some good. God couldn't allow the slightest moan of a child in a moment's pain as an object of desire. If there is any good we have of any kind, God can no more desire it for its own sake than we can desire that. He can inflict it, but only as on a child a teacher or guide inflicts pain as necessary for its good. Nowadays, I think people ought to realize that great aspect of God because often, in an unintelligent way, they're causing great pain for some ultimate physical good so that the modern world might be expected to understand a group that could not regard a sigh or moan as inflicted by God on his beloved children except for some good or another. The modern world is avoiding the difficulty and thereby creating it. Never in the history of our own people were there so many suicides. The world is flying from suffering and death, seeking to dull for those that die, and to some extent for those that nurse the dying, the approach of death. It is easier to nurse a drugged patient than one that isn't. That comes close upon the heels of murder. Some of us expect to see an almost regularized official murder as the world's bewildered answer to the problem of suffering. Psychologically, too, the proper way of meeting fear is to stand up to it, fly, and it haunts you. That is the psychology of fear. The world is flying from suffering and increasing it. It is afraid to look on the lineaments of its own kith and kin when dead, that is diminishing human love. Fear is a very poor substitute for love. God is good. I'm putting that first because it is first. If suffering comes upon us and God is blotted out, everything goes with him. Our God is Jesus of Calvary. Never think that Calvary came into its own on Good Friday. It is not just a hill of skulls shrouded in darkness. It is a mountain lit up as a spring morning with the rising sun, bright with youth, clothed with a white garment, 
honey-sweet, rose-sweet, with forgiving and forgetting love. The loveliest thing in the whole world is the hill where Jesus died. So that God is good, and if no other thing went with us into the garden of agony, at night or alone, we should not be, ah, not alone. God is good, and our hand would be in his. We can feel the print of the nails, and in the stillness almost hear the breaking of the sacred heart, and hear him say to the bride of the psalm, Veni Cornaberis. He is so much, he is all. Take him away, and there is no other. Those who take God out of suffering have taken away its only relief. They have left us stark, hopeless, fallen, no saviour, no redeemer, no fellow sufferer, alone, and alone in a world that perhaps in its bitterness is wishing us out of its care. But with Jesus, our God, death itself has an answer, and suffering a meaning and a purpose with him who is never so near as those who are on his cross. What about ourselves? Let us go quietly into the psychology of it. We shall find that it is sometimes quite easy to do an act of virtue without having that virtue, but the opportunity of acting only from that virtue is when no other motive is present for the doing of the act. If there is a command and no other motive is available for obeying it except the command, then we have to exert the virtue of obedience. So that, in a sense, the great opportunity of exercising a virtue is when it costs. This life is only preparation, a short, brief span before eternity. Here, in this time of preparation, we have to form ourselves, and the only opportunity quickly to form ourselves is to accept some suffering without opposition, and suffering is the greatest opposition. It is impossible for us, on the whole, to exert our power to its fullness. A life of pleasure is not necessarily a life of sin, but it is always lower than the heroic. Watch suffering come to the soul that has been striving to grow. It is like growth after a long winter, when spring seems less than a day, and summer follows on the heels of winter. The trees seem to leap into life before almost the buds are out of the blossom is there, and before the blossom is off the tree, the fruit is in profusion. To some souls there is only the invitation, and now their life is only God, only God. He is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and straight to him their heart goes. There are no bypaths. Straighter even than the arrow to its mark goes the soul that has now accepted that invitation. And, oh, the peace that comes. No peace is equal to accepted sorrow. There is a sense of poise, power, stillness, control. Nowhere else is it equaled in the world. There is the strength of weakness that smiles at the onslaught of what seems the greatest thing in the world, death. 
that is strength, like the strong woman who could laugh in the day of death. There is perfect poise and power of control. If then you want to see the essence of peace in this world, look into the tear-misted eyes of accepted suffering, suffering, as they say, sent by God. I know what I am speaking about. For a priest to help him in his last hour sees these things as no other being sees them. None is so blessed as the priest acquainted with the heroism of accepted suffering. He knows, as even the heroes and heroines themselves do not know, the strength of their apparent weakness and the peace that means self-control of heart. So then suffering is necessary for heroes and heroines, that souls may be born. Francis Thompson said, Nothing begins and nothing ends. That is not pain and moan. We are born in others' pain and perish in our own. As things are, there must be suffering. Very often those who suffer refuse to call it anything but joy. Just one last thing. One aspect of our own relationship to suffering is to reassure those that suffer. There are few tests whether we love God. We could only be certain if God himself gave us the revelation. Almost equal to that revelation, though a little less, is partnership with Jesus Christ in suffering. No other test comes so near to absolute certitude when so quickly, though with a sense of pain, souls say in suffering or sorrow, Thy will be done. If a soul loved God or loved to love God and would care to know not that it loves but that it is loved, the great test is partnership with Jesus Christ in the valley of sorrow or on the hill of death. One or other of these two partnerships must one day be ours. May God grant us in the hour of suffering, whatever it may be, the consolation of accepting it and of having thereby the reassurance that we love him. May we love him not just in the, the day, lest it be the day we love rather than himself, not just in health, lest it be health of limb we love. But when the night of darkness and pain comes to limb or mind, may we think of his wounded limbs and his sufferings, and then in our love, our suffering will seem but little to accept beside his. People aren't getting out much these days, but they are listening to podcasts. So if you're in publishing, nonprofit ministry, church technology, vestments, or anything in between, we would love to advertise for you right here on our weekly podcast. We have hundreds of listeners a week. Our audience is cross-generational and it is growing. Just email Andrew Russell at arussell@livingchurch.org. That's A-R-U-S-S-E-L-L at livingchurch.org and he'll get you started. The second talk is part of that 
looking to him, looking to Christ in his sufferings in the midst of ours. This is a, a meditation called The Suffering Christ, part of a retreat that Father McNabb gave at Grayshot Convent in April of 1933 during Passion Week. It's called The Suffering Christ. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants struck him with the palms of their hands. It is with very great diffidence that a preacher can approach the sufferings of our Lord and Saviour. They are so sacrosanct he hardly dare mention them. They are such an adverse criticism of his life. But we must refer to them to make a last assault on our mind and heart. I have said that Calvary is not just Good Friday. It is also Easter Sunday. Suffering is not a good thing in itself. It would be terrible if the last view of Calvary were a view of the outstretched and suffering body of our Lord. Some forty hours later, the crosses are still standing, but the hill is all bathed in the light of Easter Sunday. Angels are there. There is all the traffic of redemption. Out of suffering has grown grace, light out of darkness. The darkness was only allowed that light might come from it. After a night of sorrow, few things bring so much joy as the dawn. We should never consider suffering as the last thing. We are created for joy, the right joy. We have only gone astray after the wrong joy. We can come back only by suffering. Thank God the suffering will pass by and we shall have eternal joy. There is no approach to perfection except through some suffering, God-inflicted or self-inflicted, I think we may take this passage to be the first physical suffering of our Lord. He had hungered and borne the heat, the burden and heat of the day, but now he is beginning the great redemptive suffering. There is a sense in which that bodily suffering is greatest and least. Physical things are the most intense. People feel almost as if they do not love God because there is not the same keen pleasure in it as in material things. Food, drink, physical comfort and beauty and the rest. There is not the same intensity of feeling. People wonder whether they have supernatural faith or supernatural love. But that is just what supernatural love would be. It would be of that character. It is not the same intense character as the physical reality would be. It seems as if God has, has attached pleasure to the lowest functions because a spiritual being could hardly be persuaded to the lesser things unless there was some pleasure attached to them, attached in order to coax a spiritual being to some physical function, such as eating. That is why there is the greatest pain attached to any interference with such functions in order to preserve the balance between body and soul. The chief proof we can have of a conviction is to offer up our physical life. We cannot destroy the life of the soul. The only kind of life we can inflict on intelligence is untruth, 
The only death of free will is to do wrong. We cannot offer that to anyone. We cannot deliberately tell a venial lie to save the world. We cannot offer up the life of our soul for anyone, but we can offer up our physical life. That is the supreme test of our conviction and of our love. That was the supreme test our Lord offered up, the deliberate giving up of his physical life. He gave his word that he would do it. What he says stands. The actual offering is not made until the thing is done. The supreme truth is the doing of what we say. We know our Lord will keep his word. The great proof that he loved us was that he gave up his physical life. There was no higher way in which he could prove it. The deliberate laying down of his life was the supreme proof that he loved us. It was not the death on the cross that redeemed us. It was the obedience, the love that was in it. He wanted over and above that to satisfy. The whole incarnation was God's wonderful design for proving something, making his love almost as visible as the stars and the sun. Hence we have the physical death of our Lord, with all the physical sufferings too. They are a proof of the internal love and also symbols of the internal love. The only convincing proof of love is the doing of the disagreeable things. When there is no love of that course of action, but only the love of the person for whom it is done. It is well to meditate on all our Lord's sufferings, that we may realize his great love. Those external sufferings are symbols of his internal sufferings. The five external senses are all wonderful things in themselves. They are also symbolical of the powers of the intelligence in some transcendent way. But the senses are first of all realities, as well as symbols of higher intellectual powers. We say, I see, when we mean intellectual sight. We speak of hearing the divine message, of touching the divine mind, of tasting that the Lord is sweet. Hence, we may look on all the sufferings of our Lord as symbolical, but first we have to understand the physical ones. The five sorrowful mysteries of the rosary have made these sufferings the subject of thinking, the scourging of our Lord's sacred flesh, the crowning with thorns, the carrying of the cross, the physical death on the cross. All these thoughts are of a very great use in the spiritual life. That is not the end of them. Great as they are in that sphere and terrible to the human will, they're only symbols of something further. We must not depreciate the physical side of our Lord's sufferings. In our own case, we don't at all depreciate it. Nowadays, there are all kinds of contrivances to lessen physical pain. People think in order to avoid physical pain, they can scrap the Ten Commandments. It is only by meditating on the passion and death of our Lord that we can give the ultimate judgment. Hence, it is very difficult for us to think of the physical pain of our Lord. St. Thomas Aquinas has a quiet analysis more moving than any mere emotional statement. He asks whether Christ suffered all sufferings. He had every generic kind of suffering, first on the part of men. His sufferings were inflicted by men and with his will and by his design from the Gentiles and the Jews, from men and from women, 
from rulers and their servants, from friends and acquaintances. This is the great master going into all these things. Our Lord suffered from every kind of person. Secondly, he suffered every kind of suffering, from his friends abandoning him, from loneliness, in his reputation, in his honor and glory, the mockery, in things he was despoiled of his garments, in his soul by sadness and weariness and fear, in his body by the wounds and the scourging. Thirdly, he suffered in all his bodily members. Sometimes I wonder how that most tender heart, responsible for the adorote devotee, could write these things without any sign of emotion. It is the stillness of perfect love, like the stabat mater, our dear lady motionless in suffering. He suffered in his head from the thorns, in his hands and feet by the fastening of the nails, in his face from the blows and spittle, from the lashes over his entire body. Fourthly, he suffered in all his bodily senses, in his touch by the scourging and the nails, in his taste from the vinegar and the gall, in his smell by being fastened to the gibbet in a place reeking with the stench of corpses, in his hearing from being tormented with the cries of blasphemers and scorners, and, here is a touch worthy of Dante, in his sight, by beholding the tears of his mother and the disciple he loved. This ascetic truth of the great doctor often seems the highest poetry. He leaves it to us. He tells us how our Lord suffered in his eyes, and he says that it was the very least one of these sufferings, was of itself suffering enough to redeem the human race from all sin. That is woven into the adorote. But, says St. Thomas, it was fitting that he should endure all at once. One suffering would have sufficed for our redemption, but it would not suffice the love of the Redeemer. He meant to give copious redemption. He willed that the beaker should brim over. He gave a thousand redemptions all in one. We can just quietly salute each sacred member of our Lord's body, wondering which one suffered most. We are in those sufferings by our own doing, inflicting them. But he loved us so much that he bore them by his own doing, with desire, if not with joy. May our beloved Lord and Saviour grant us then, as one of the fruits of our redemption, a sympathy with all these wounds. May we be together nailed with him. May we be crowned with him, even if for a moment it is a crown of thorns. If we have to suffer in any of the senses of our body, so be it. He is with us in our sufferings. Only if the suffering Christ is in our thoughts and the outstretched form of the crucified daily in our heart can we rightly measure at once the hate, love, joy, and sorrow of the world. The cross is the great measure of all. It is God's infinite love of what deserved infinite hate. When we inflicted all this suffering upon him, how he still loved us is a mystery of God's will. 
the most consoling mystery of God's most foolish love. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.